In Temple Emmanuel's weekly Shabbat sermons, Rabbis Wes, Michelle, and Eliza share reflections, wisdom, and teaching to enrich your mind and soul. You can find the video archives and podcast versions on templeemmanuel.com. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Good morning. Uh, so meaningful to be with everybody this morning. Uh, this week, uh, with the uh, terrible murder of children at the Rob Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, helps us understand in a deeper way a move that many religions have, including Judaism, uh, for a Messiah. The world is so screwed up. The world is just hopelessly screwed up. It's been 10 years since Newtown, still more of the same. Um, I heard a person who's an expert on this field on NPR last night, 300,000 children in American public school or American schools have been personally exposed to gun violence, 300,000 and still. And so you think, oh my God, we need a Messiah to come and solve this because obviously we can't solve this alone. And we've been doing the Elijah stories and Elijah is gonna connect us to the Messiah tradition, but because meaning comes from contrast, we're gonna contrast the meaning of the Messiah motif in religion, at least in Jewish religion, uh, what the Messiah does in Judaism with a whole other figure called the prophet, because we actually experienced this week what a modern prophet would look like, and we'll see what, what does the prophet bring to this horrible situation? What would the Messiah bring to this horrible situation? What can we bring? So let's thank God for the gift of learning Torah together. Baruch Eloheinu olam. the prophet that we're going to juxtapose against the Messiah is Steve Kerr, who is also in a state job, the coach of the Golden State Warriors. He's the best basketball coach of the best basketball team. Um, his team was playing the Dallas Mavericks uh, in Texas the day of the shooting, and this is his press conference because he didn't want to talk about basketball. So I'll ask our colleague Andrew Hanlon to get this going, and um, let's listen to a modern prophet. I'm not going to talk about basketball. Nothing's uh, happened with our team in the last six hours. We're going to start the same way tonight. Um, any basketball questions uh, don't matter. Um, since we left shoot-around, 14 children were killed 400 miles from here, and a, and a teacher. And in the last 10 days, we've had elderly black people killed in a supermarket in Buffalo. We've had Asian churchgoers killed in Southern California, and now we have children murdered at school. When are we going to do something? I'm tired. I'm, I'm so tired of getting up here and offering condolences to, to the 
devastated families that are out there. I'm so tired of the, excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm tired of the moments of silence. Enough. There's 50 senators right now who refuse to vote on H.R. 8, which is a background check rule that the House passed a couple years ago. It's been sitting there for two years. And there's a reason they won't vote on it, to hold on to power. So I ask you, Mitch McConnell, I ask all of you senators who refuse to do anything about the violence and school shootings and supermarket shootings, I ask you, are you going to put your own desire for power ahead of the lives of our children and our elderly and our churchgoers? Because that's what it looks like. It's what we do every week. So I'm fed up. I've had enough. We're going to play the game tonight, but I want every person here, every person listening to this, to think about your own child or grandchild or mother or father or sister brother. How would you feel if this happened to you today? We can't get numb to this. We can't sit here and just read about it and go, well, let's have a moment of silence. Yeah, go Dubs, you know. Come on, Mavs, let's go. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go play a basketball game. And, and 50 senators in Washington are going to hold us hostage. Do you realize that 90% of Americans, regardless of political party, want background check, universal background check? 90% of us, we are being held hostage by 50 senators in Washington who refuse to even put it to a vote, despite what we, the American people, want. They won't vote on it because they want to hold on to their own power. It's pathetic. I've had enough. So, dear colleagues, um, it's pathetic. I've had enough. That is what a prophet looks like, and that is what a prophet sounds like. Uh, anger, uh, disgust, uh, a Jeremiad. Um, I'd love just to invite your reactions to what you've heard just said, and, and what do you think about it, and, and where does that lead us as a society? I think the most important thing you said is that we can't get numb to this, because I think in a lot of ways we already have been. Oh, another school shooting. Oh, my God. Well, okay, and what's next? Uh, I think that we have, we have, as a country, reached that stage. The other thing, the other really important thing that he said is about, uh, <coughs> about people wanting to just hold on to power for the sake of power and not for the sake of the people. And that is as pathetic as anyone can ever be. So can I just say on that, Dan, I, I mean, I love Steve Kerr. He's, uh, by the way, Steve Kerr's father was shot and killed uh, by gun violence. So this issue is deeply personal to him. Um, so he's the best basketball coach in, in the world, but a mensch and personal victim of gun violence, etc. But I want us, and I love what he said, which is why I brought it to our class. But I want to say, I, I think he doesn't actually get at the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue, he blames the 50 senators, who I don't love those 50 senators either. But that's, that's a symptom of the problem. It's not the source of the problem. The source of the problem is that those 50 senators represent millions of Americans who love guns more than they love their children or they love guns more than they love somebody else's children. And uh, in fact, they, 
the senator from North Dakota was asked, why aren't you going to do anything? And he says flat out, I mean, this was this week, he said, well, I'll get thrown out of office if I pass any gun legislation. Um, and I, I don't want to get thrown out of office. So it's, of course, that's cowardice. But the heart of the matter, this is what I'm trying to grapple with, and, and he, is, he does cry from the heart, is the heart of the matter is that the 50 senators don't act because the millions of Americans who elect them don't want them to act. I mean, if, those, if, those, if the people who elected them said to them, hey, Senator from North Dakota, Senator from South Dakota, Senator from Texas, if you don't fix this gun problem, we're going to get you out of office and get Senator in who would, they would vote sensible gun legislation. They don't because their constituents don't want them to. So the heart of the matter is we live in a country where millions of Americans love guns more than they love other people's children. And that is of which the senator problem is a symptom. Um, so what do you do with that? And, and again, what do you think of his prophetic utterance? And what do you think of a conversation which ends? And this is because we're always trying to figure out in the religion business what do we do about something. Where his anger ends is he slams the table. I've dis I'm disgusted. We get that. I've had enough. We get that. He storms out. Now, one of the things about prophets is they're famously correct and famously ineffective. Prophets never accomplish jack in the Bible. Every prophet fails, except for Jonah, which is a literary construct, and the people that he supposedly persuades are Assyrians, not Jews anyway. But no Jewish prophet to Jews ever succeeds. That's just their, so they're always right, they're always righteous, they're always angry, and they're always completely ineffective. So my question is, does the prophet and the prophetic utterance actually accomplish anything? Anybody? It, it feels hard. I mean, I'm not clear that, that this will accomplish anything. There's, I mean, there's been a lot of, of press and excitement, and there was a football fan who, who didn't come out for the national anthem, but it feels unclear to me how that moves the needle. Um, and that's heartbreaking. Like, and I grew up, I, I remember, I was a kid when Columbine happened, and that was like the first big school shooting, and it was horrifying. Um, and just a few miles away from where I was in school, and, and everyone was traumatized, and now it's, it's a norm. And that's, that's Can you believe 300,000 students have been personally exposed, personally exposed to gun violence. They've been in a building when a, shooter was taking place, a shooting was taking place since Columbine. Um, so uh, any last thoughts on the prophet uh, who is right and who makes us, tries to get us not be numb, but in the end, the way it ends is slap the table, get up, I'm disgusted, and leave. Um, does the so I guess I just want to leave the prophet and leave Steve Kerr with asking you, does righteous anger get anything done? I, sometimes, right? The answer is sometimes. Um, I hope that the people who are watching the game, right, watching the interview say, wow. I didn't think of it this way. And then they may be stirred to re-examine their thoughts mm. on, on gun violence. I mean, we assume in this room, you know, of course, loving guns and or being against reasonable gun control means that you love guns more than you love children. But there's a whole bunch of Americans out there who do not see that as equivalent. And his words perhaps can help some of them to re-examine what 
they're saying if somebody they care about and they think highly of is so upset, uh, it may stop them for a moment. Does it stop them for long enough that they that they then don't rationalize and go back to saying why guns are really important anyway? I don't know. Right. But I think without that, you don't have the possibility of even that moment of asking. But one, just Michelle, one of the sobering, one of the most sobering things in a chilling week, one of the most chilling things in a chilling week, and if you follow the coverage, you no doubt encountered some version of this, as I did, was the reporter who asked citizens of Uvalde after the shooting, what do you think and what do you think we should do about it? And the citizen of Uvalde, Texas said, don't take away our guns. You better not take away our guns. Don't even think of using this to take away our guns. That's just beyond chilling. And, and the question is, what is the helpful response? Last comment on profits, and then we'll get to the Messiah. Yeah, it's, it's a question that I have for you, because I'm the only one who asks the questions. I think it's, you were, you've been in this chair, so now I have yes. the power. <laughs> um, what would you do differently from the coach behavior? Because in a way you are saying he bangs the table and leaves. What would you have done in that place? No, I, I love the coach, and I love what he did. And I'm bringing it to our class because I love it. And we, the Jewish people, love prophets because we have the whole section of the Hebrew Bible called Nevi'im. So we bring all these prophets. But I just wanted to highlight that actually Steve Kerr brings out these two accents about the prophetic tradition in the Hebrew Bible. They are always correct, as he is correct. And they are always utterly ineffective, as, uh, as he's in ineffective. I guess the only thing I would say about it is Gordon Tucker, you know, is a great rabbi and great thinker and currently, uh, you know, a big official at the seminary. He wrote a piece about what's the point of the cry of the heart of the prophet. And because it's, it's correct but ineffective, it doesn't change conduct, it doesn't move the needle, why do it? And he made, and Gordon Tucker, it just came out yesterday, makes the case that the cry of the heart, the prophet's cry, is a really good thing because the prophet kind of channels God's tears, God's upset, God's pathos. Uh, that, the, that, that the prophet can't be heard by people because we, we're flawed and finite. But the, the, what the prophet does is express God's indignation. Ko amar Adonai. This is, if there really was a God who really was in charge of the universe, comma, question mark, uh, this is what God would feel and this is what God would say. God would be appalled that after Columbine, there's Uvalde. After Newtown, there's Uvalde. After Buffalo, there's Uvalde. After Santa Ana, there's Uvalde. God would be speechless with wrath and perplexity, and the prophet expresses that, and that's the function, to express God's voice. So let's talk about the Messiah. Let's just pivot. Um, what does the Messiah do for us? So um, we have three sources here. We have uh, this story from Elijah, which is how we got into this business to begin with. Um, a rabbi says to Elijah, and again, this is in the year 70. This is after the destruction, after the Chorban. It's just dire and horrible. And this rabbi says to Elijah, wow, this world is horrible. When is the Messiah going to come? When is the Messiah going to come? We need Messiah now. I mean, this is a refrain. We want Moshiach now. The, the English translation, the world is so screwed up. I am so sick of it. This is Steve Kerr. I'm sick of it. Slamming the table. I'm sick of it. We need Mashiach now. And the rabbi, living after the Chorban, says to Elijah the prophet, when, where is the Messiah? And Elijah says to him, go to 
So you, you don't find the Messiah, at, you know, at Stanford Business School. You don't find the Messiah at Harvard Business School. You don't find the Messiah at the Union Theological or Jewish Theological Seminary. You don't find the Messiah dressed nicely with a nice shirt and tie and the nice shoes and looking ready for the crisp day. No. The Messiah, go to the poorest place. Go to the sickest place. Go to the most diseased place. Go to the place where you'll never actually see the people you see because they're just so... You don't see them. They're just sick, and they're diseased, and they've got sores, and they've got bandages. The Messiah is there. And the way you're going to know that he's the Messiah is the way that he rebandages his bandages because he's just like a bunch of open wounds. Um, and Rabbi goes to see, finds one beggar who's doing the bandages a certain way, different from everybody else, and says, Are you the Messiah? Yes, I'm the Messiah. When are you going to come? I'm going to come today. I'm coming today. We're going to finally solve the problem today. No more after Uvalde. And yet he doesn't come. And then he says, the rabbi says to Elijah, this Messiah lied. Why did he lie? He said he was coming today. And he didn't come today. And the story ends by Elijah saying to the rabbi, no, 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 no. He didn't lie. He said, I'll come today if you will all, plural, you will all listen to God's voice. And if and when you'll all listen to God's voice, Messiah will come on that day. That's the story. So, question, why find the Messiah in a leper colony? And what's the message of the story? And what would you, uh, what would you, you say, say about... poker face is the best thing you'll tell me. Yeah. What, what did I get wrong today, Michelle? What did I get wrong today? It just wasn't, it wasn't the question I thought you were going to ask. Oh, answer the question. It's okay, I'm, I can handle it. Answer the question you would like to ask. Was going with you into the question about the, the Messiah will come only when we're when when we're ready when we find the Messiah. And to me, the most heartbreaking thing um, about the story that you read in the news is that it's not just pure evil at play. There was pure evil at play. There was also incompetence and hard-heartedness, and and um, you know that there were children sitting in that building making 911 calls. There were parents screaming outside. For an hour. For an hour while police just stood there. That's that story that you just read. We're not ready. We don't deserve that Messiah in a world where we can't respond to the cries of our children. That's exactly the opposite of how you, how you feel. Because well, we need that message, yeah, for you sure. Know, if, if we are so incapable of action, that's when, the, that's when we really need the Messiah. Yeah, but, yeah, but interestingly, not according to this story, right? Yeah, there are yeah. other Messianic stories this, which would have exactly that. Yeah, so this, I'm, just, I'm just reacting personally. Yeah, that. so Michelle, can I just um, say I, I love your read? Because if you if you read the end of the story, the words are, Hayom imbakolo tishma'u. Uh, the Messiah will come today if God's voice you will all hear. It's the second person plural. So you want the Messiah, you don't get to just sit at home and watch Netflix and the Messiah comes. Um, you have agency and you have responsibility and you have a job. We have a job. It's a collect. The Messiah is a collective deal. It's not a wait passively for some person on a white horse to come in deal. And so it's Hayom, they'll come on the day, in if you will hear God's voice, we have responsibility to bring the Messiah. I think that is the shot of this story, and tragically right. I mean, uh, the hour of inaction, etc. 
So um, that's going to be. Can I yes. bring in a little funny note? I have to say, I always try to look for funny stuff in stories, and that's my nature. So for me, there's the punchline at the end. This will have been a joke. Is Elijah saying to the rabbi when he comes back, "Look who thinks is the Messiah"? Yeah. About the leper. Thank, thank you. Okay, let's pivot to um, to the Agnos story, the kerchief. Okay, and um, so if you didn't read it, uh, just to summarize real quick, uh, this is a story about a boy. It's told from the point of view of a 13-year-old boy uh, whose father goes away on a business trip to Galicia. Uh, they're in Galicia, wherever Galicia is, to this ter- fair in Lashkowitz, wherever Lashkowitz is. All the boy knows is that uh, it's very lonely. He's very lonely when the father goes away. And uh, it feels like Tishabov when the father goes away. And there's so much deep loneliness that this little boy, 13 years old, is dreaming of a Messiah. I mean, he's kind of Messiah-obsessed. Like, and I would love a, mes- I'd love a world where my dad doesn't have to leave. I'd love a world where my mother has my father. I'd, have, I'd love a world where my family is intact, an intact family. And I need a Messiah to make that happen. And uh, one day the father comes back and he gives everybody presents. And the present that he gives uh, his wife, this boy, the narrator's mother, is a kerchief. And it's a beautiful, pure kerchief. And she puts it on her head when she does Hablakat Nero Shabbat. And he just associates it with ultimate purity. And um, she gives this to him. Uh, for his bar mitzvah. It's his gift now. And this boy talks about the tradition we just discussed in Sanhedrin about the Messiah coming from a leper colony. And one day he sees a leper, and this leper has uh, got bandages and has got wounds and has got blood and has got dirt and just looks so uh, in need, in need. And this boy is carrying his mother's perfectly pure and holy kerchief, and this boy just instinctively gives the kerchief to this beggar, and the kerchief goes from being clean and pristine and pure to bloody and dirty, and the little boy walks home, and his mother is, uh, is, is smiling through the window, and the boy feels warmth and sees his mother smile. The story ends. We'll get to Harold Kushner's treatment of that. But the story itself, what did you think of it, and what did you think it's trying to teach us? It was so beautiful. I I particularly loved in the story the boy has second guesses when he gives the kerchief over, that his mother has given it to him, and he has all this memory of the the beauty of that kerchief and and its pristineness and the way that she would only wear it for the most sacred of holidays and, and that she gave it to him as a way of celebrating his life. And, and he has this worry that by giving away her kerchief, he somehow wronged her. And that and the, that final scene of, of her looking through the window and smiling at him and seeing him and, and feeling pride in him is a reminder for him that, like, you did the right thing. But to me, that feels like the truth about doing the work that's necessary to heal our world, to bring Mashiach, that that it's, it's uncomfortable and it doesn't always feel clear and... and when you get into it, it always um, asks of you a lot. It, it asks you to make yourself uncomfortable. It asks you to give up your privilege. It asks you to give up your your ease. It asks you to give up the way things were in order to make things better. 
And I think sometimes our fear of what that looks like holds us up and holds us, prevents us from very much in the way of Steve Kerr talking about the 50 senators. Our, our discomfort with change prevents us from doing what needs to be done. And Eliza, what do you think? I mean, that kerchief is a, is an object used in a religious ceremony. It's it's Habakkuk Nero Shabbat. It's going from Paul to Kodesh from weekday to Shabbat, and this is emblematic of that moment of transition, holiness, kedusha, pure, pristine. Uh, what is Agnon saying about religion and the proper use of religion in our messy world? Uh, in some ways, it feels like I mean, religion permeates every every moment of the story that it feels like religion is the is the language we use the air that we breathe but also that you shouldn't privilege religious experience over people's suffering that if you have a choice between religious purity religious experience or aiding someone's suffering you should definitely do whatever you can to help them in other words the best use of a kerchief is not necessarily pure and pristine and holy for the sabbath the best use of a kerchief is to Find a beggar's wounds, um, and that, and then when when white becomes red, and pure and clean becomes dirty and messy, but you've helped somebody else. That's the best use of the kerchief, and perhaps that's the purpose of religion is to inspire us to do that. I was just going to say, I think there's also that's not the only possibility, right? That happens to be this boy's, in some ways, the tragedy of this story is that the limit of help is the kerchief, which can't be very comfortable on that wound and has, you know, it's embroidered. And so I'm thinking about, like, if you have open sores, having an embroidered fabric is not super comfortable. And the only help that this beggar gets is that kerchief. And so the mom is smiling, but the beggar's reality isn't moved at all. And that feels like a somewhat dissatisfying end of the story, right? Like the more satisfying response would be actual help and actual. So when you say the beggar isn't helped at all, and, and this is just so important because nobody else sees the beggar. This boy sees the beggar. And I, and I, I one of my favorite Elisa Berger stories is I remember when we used to go to the prison, Suffolk County Prison, and we would go down the meth mile. There was a lot of poverty, um, a lot of beggars. And a lot of people looking for, for a handout. And I never saw them. I mean, I just never saw them. I was like the rest of the people who don't see with the beggar. But you, you always would give the beggar a granola bar or an apple. You, you carried granola bars and apples in your purse to see them. Now, it didn't alleviate their hunger and their suffering, but you saw them, and that's what this boy did. It was a granola bar. It was an apple. It was an act of seeing, which is more than 99% of the world does. Elias, you were going to say something. Oh, um, I was going to say that the, uh, what stands out for me in the Agnon story is that um, it's like, in a way, like symbolic of, you know, we are, like, we are getting you all the, all the tools, all the right values, in the Jewish world up until a certain age for them, for you to use it in the way you, you think it's better for the world. And that is the, the rite of passage, you know, that I see that when he goes and gives something that is so emotionally and they have so much attachment to it because it comes from the family, it comes, you know, from the mother. It, it, it's really beautiful. It's a really beautiful story and it's what we wish, you know. We, we raise our children in a synagogue in the Jewish world with Jewish textbooks and then go and do good for the world, and yeah. that's what I see in this story. Mr. Yeah, I just want to say, there's one great line in this story, it's in near the end of chapter 5, where it says, uh, there were not many gifts that survived long, 
That's just the way that the valuables of this world, they were not, uh, they were not lasting. So I, I, that's just a great line because it just talks about, it's just pointing to the fact that what's really valuable in this world uh, is not valuable, um, it, it isn't really valuable. What's really valuable is the values that we create and the values that we have in our family and that um, this boy at 13 recognizes that the most important thing is not things but action. Mm. And I think that is what ultimately leads him to give, give away the kids he's looking at. Right. So let me, let me pivot now uh, to 1976, December of 1976. Um, you know, Harold Kushner's son Aaron is having his bar mitzvah. Aaron is already very sick from progeria. He would go on to die that year, as Rabbi Kushner's notes in his sermon notes. So Rabbi Kushner is doing a bar mitzvah for a dying son. And it's, uh, you know, bar mitzvah is like, it's supposed to be about beginnings and adulthood. And Rabbi Kushner and Aaron and the family and the community know that this is a special kind of bar mitzvah, which is more about a climax than a beginning. And the text that Rabbi Kushner uses for his son's bar mitzvah is the kerchief story. Um, it's always so interesting for those of us in the preaching business. We give a sermon and we never know what people take away from it. So let's just do a test and experiment right here and right now. You are ready. I thought that you did a hundred emails every time you do What what was the takeaway? that you took away from this sermon? Like if you were, you know, going home to Solomon or Lorena or Emma or Mike, and they said, what did the rabbi talk about? What would your one, you know, one-minute summary to your loved one be about this sermon if you were her rabbi? Um, so I have a favorite book, one of my favorite books on my bookshelf for the title alone is uh, there is no Messiah and you're it. And and that's really what I take away here in the sense of this story from the Talmud, right, posits that there's an external force that's coming to redeem us. And Kushner here brings us to the point of the most effective Messiah is the one that we can be for somebody else, that each of us has that, that role to fill. And... I mean, here in, in italics, right, you can bring the Messiah for somebody else much more easily than you can for yourself. And the redemption that we seek in this world um, is not going to come by some, you know, supernatural, please, please save us, but it's, it's going to come by the acts of kindness and goodness that we do for each other. Amen. So can I just double-click on that, Michelle, because I... I, I also, that would be my takeaway if I was so unsure about the sermon, um, that there is, you cannot be the Messiah for yourself, right? And you cannot be the Messiah for the world. I remember once, I think I've shared this story with you, but uh, I w once was doing a shiva for a family here where the family member was very high up in the Obama campaign in 2008, was like very high up in the Obama campaign, and was in Chicago Grand Park in 08 when Obama won the election. And in their home in Newton was this big wall photograph of Obama speaking on the night. Like this is after, after all the tortured history, a black 
president of the United States, and this is the first night Barack Obama, black man, had just become president. And it's a beautiful, and, and it's all that energy in Grant Park in Chicago, and and you see these pictures of people on the face and a president and Michelle and the kids, and it's it's a, a, a wall-sized photograph to the extent, and he was there, and it's just like the greatest moment. And he has it, and it, and it feels messianic. Like if anybody could be the Messiah, it would be this, this moment where our tortured history have left, right? And we know that didn't happen. Um, nobody, could, even Barack Obama, could be nobody. Pick your favorite leader. Can be the Messiah for the whole world. And you can't be the Messiah for yourself, but everybody can be the Messiah for somebody else. That's a clear takeaway from this uh, sermon. Eliza, what was your takeaway as you're telling Solomon about it? Definitely that. I think also that one of the ways you can respond to brokenness in your, your own life is by focusing on somebody else and on and, and that even though you, you can't fix it, that that eases the suffering that, that you're experiencing, whatever you're doing. Not, that, not just that you can be the Messiah for somebody else and you can't be for yourself, but, but there is a redeeming quality that when you're doing that work, it does help you. Right. By, by helping somebody else, you also help yourself at this, in that moment. Elias, what would you tell Lorena about the sermon? I would tell her that it was a gorgeous sermon with a beautiful story and remarkable that he has the strength to give that sermon at his son, you know, that makes you knowing what the future will look like. But to me, I'm going to think a little different outside the boat. Um, there was a reason why our sages, our rabbis, created these ideas of the Mashiach. Because obviously, on earth, they felt that they couldn't fix the problem. Right? That was the genesis of it. And we've been carrying that, that you know, ideal and, 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 and thought and tradition for centuries. Um, but how realistic is that right now? You know, and, and questioning the, the concept of the Mashiach here. If, if, you know, our sages, the most brilliant ones, thought about Elijah being the Mashiach, and they brought it, they created this image because they couldn't fix the world, a little skepticism, the one that I have, yeah. about this whole concept of the Mashiach. Yeah, so I mean, so the, uh, the question must be asked, uh, it's obvious, reading these passages when we are, where we are, what does this tradition, including Rabbi Kushner's gorgeous sermon, what does it say about Uvalde? And what does it say about a country where the 50 cowardly senators are cowardly because the millions of people who vote them in actually love guns? more than other people's children, which means that 300,000 number is going to grow, which means there will be, a, there will be, it's just a question of when and where, there will be another school shooting after Uvalde, and we all know this. And what is, it, so, so what does the Messiah tradition in either of these texts say to that reality of ours? Can you answer that? <laughs> You feel like you want to talk. No poker face, that means yeah. a good question. No, look, uh, the the Messiah's tradition is really rich and varied within our Jewish texts. You have the argument of some that say that the Mashiach will come when all of us are so good that we observe Shabbat. And then famously, you have the idea that the Mashiach will come when the world is just so broken and beyond repair that it's clear we can't do it ourselves. Um, I love the story that you brought because it's somewhere 
in between those two um, and, and says we don't have to be perfect in order to do it. We also don't have to be so broken. We just have to want it more than we want the status quo. And, and I think it, it calls on all of us. I mean, if you think about the prophet as the voice of God crying out to us, you know, we do have to want the beggar at the gate to actually rise up. We, we need the people who you're talking about who vote to, to actually understand <laughs> that this will continue to happen again and again and to value the lives of their children and our children and, 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 and everybody's children. We spoke last week about, uh, about or two weeks ago, about abortion. Right and the right to life. Uh, we need to take that that thread through and and really value life as so, as lived on this world. Can I ask a question briefly before we end? Um, so, in a way, you are saying that this whole idea of the Mashiach as a as a savior of the world it doesn't exist and it will never happen. It will be happening That's in not what small. I'm no, let me finish. It will be small little things that we as human beings do to improve different things in society. So in other words, we see the Mashiach happening in different eras when things get better all the time. Because you are only mentioning, I mean, there are so many problems around the world sure. that the guns violence is one of them that is terrible for this country, but it's not the only one. Of course not. They're, they're suffering all over the world. What I'm saying is actually not that there won't be a Mashiach. I would love for, I mean, either of those visions would be good for me. You bring on the Mashiach. We definitely need the Mashiach. Um, but what I see, you know, we're talking about Elijah and Elijah is the forerunner of the Mashiach. He's not the one, he's not the Mashiach. He's right. the one who tells us the Mashiach can come. And that I think is the most important piece that right. all of us believe that there is a possibility that there could be repair, and I think that we don't just give in yeah. till we know there's going to be another well, one. We know, right. but but that doesn't have to be inevitable, and I think right. that's the point of the Talmud story you brought to begin. So I would I would just end um, by saying one of the the, the the Kushner sermon to me was particularly brilliant because he points to first of all stuff I didn't know <coughs> about the composition of the story that Kushner writes it in 13 chapters as a bar mitzvah gift for Gershon Schocken, who was about to have his bar mitzvah in Berlin in 1933. Talk about brokenness. You're growing up as a Jewish boy in Hitler's Germany. And fortunately for that family, they go to Israel, so that family lives and this boy lives and has a life. Um, but already at the age of 13, recognizes that there is deep brokenness in the world, namely Nazis and anti-Semitism. Kushner is giving this sermon when his own son has a different challenge, not Nazis, but progeria, and he's going to die within two years. Um, and Kushner's main point is that uh, a childish view of religion, and he has this, he has, makes this dichotomy, childish view of religion is about me and how can I make myself less lonely and more happy. And an adult view of religion begins with the premise that there is this deep societal brokenness whether it's Nazis or illness or gun violence, or there's always something, and that the whole purpose of religion is to inspire us uh, to do our part. So I want to leave everyone, uh, we don't have any answers here, and we don't have any packages that we can tie up with a bow, 
But I want to leave all of you at home whose hearts are broken by the brokenness of our country with a question. It is, uh, what do you do about it? What do you do about it? Um, and the only option I think that is really not an okay option is the one that I am always most tempted to do, the one that we are all most tempted to do, which is it's so sad and so hard and feels so uh, intractable that we are tempted to just shake our head, shrug our shoulders, and move on to the next item on our calendar that day. And I think the prophet challenges us to try to keep God's voice in mind. How will God be hearing us? Um, and Elijah and the prophetic tradition and the Messiah tradition encourages us Hayom in today the Messiah will come if we collectively do our part. And I leave you with the question, what is your part? And Elias, you have a song. Yes, I want to end with a beautiful song written by Max Tyken, uh, a reform movement musician, and actually uh, it's beautiful. The lyrics are very beautiful, speaks very much to our time. Eliyahu HaKishi, Eliyahu HaNavi, Eliyahu HaGiladi, Nimera Be'yameinu, Yahabor Eleheinu, Im Mashiach Ben David, Im Mashiach Ben David. We are waiting for a time to come, when injustice shall be gone, pain and violence will be no more, done with hatred, done with war. And all the people in the land will lend their voices, lend their hand. They stars with you and me, and Eliyahu Hanabi, Eliyahu Hanabi, Eliyahu Hatishvi, Eliyahu Hanabi, Eliyahu Agilari, Himera Beyameinu, Yabo Veleheinu, Himashiach Ben David, Himashiach Ben David. Verse 3, so we will not wait a minute more to build the world we're waiting for. Building stars with you and me and Eliyahu, 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 Anabi. Shabbat Shalom.